Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, a guided tour of the planet Mars. Mars is, as you may have noticed, very cold. The atmosphere is terribly thin. Being at sea level, but there are no seas, is like being in the stratosphere of the Earth. And what can statisticians tell us about the arts? We meet the researchers cataloging culture. We were able to trace the changing meaning of some words in ancient Greek that scholars had spent many years studying. But first, our correspondent, Noah Snyder, traveled to one of the most remote places on Earth to talk to the scientist who's on a mission to slow the thawing of the Arctic. Last summer, I went to the Russian Arctic to meet with a man named Sergei Zimov. He's got this long gray beard, this long gray hair, these intense gray-blue eyes. He took me one day down the Kolyma River. We bounced in a rickety motorboat for a few hours until we got to a cliffside of frozen ground that they call permafrost. As we were standing there on this cliffside, mammoth bones were sticking from the mud. There were sort of old plant and animal remains strewn across the banks of this river. Sergei turned to me and said, to be a prophet, you must live in the desert. I've really come to see Sergei in a way as a prophet of the permafrost. Nearly a quarter of the Northern Hemisphere, we're talking about an area that's twice the size of America, sits on top of ground. It's made up of soil, which remains frozen for at least two years at a time. The man who really pioneered the study of, of the frozen earth as a scientific field, Mikhail Sumgin, he often referred to the permafrost as the Russian Sphinx. The technical term for it, permafrost, is the eternal frost, the eternally frozen ground. But what we're learning increasingly is that the permafrost may not be as permanent as once believed. Permafrost contains rich deposits of organic material, like most soil does. So these are old plant roots, animal carcasses, but in the permafrost they've been preserved in the ice over the course of millions of years, and so the deposits are especially rich. When the permafrost thaws, that organic material turns into basically food for microbes. And when the microbes break that material down, that releases gases like carbon dioxide and methane. 
one way to think about the scale of the consequences is, is simply how much carbon is locked up in the permafrost. The best estimates reckon that there's as much as 1,600 billion tons of carbon. To put it in perspective, that's about twice as much carbon as is currently found in the atmosphere and about three times as much carbon as is locked in all of the world's forests. It's not all going to be released and it's certainly not all going to be released at once. So the permafrost is not really a bomb like some people tend to say. It's more like a leaky pipe. Permafrost could in fact be a positive force for the climate. It could sequester more carbon than it releases. Things start to look really bad when you look at the models where we aren't doing enough to mitigate our own greenhouse gas emissions. In those models, something like 5 to 15% of the permafrost carbon reserves could be released this century. Some scientists reckon would lead to an increase in global temperatures of as much as 0.27 degrees Celsius. So Chersky sits along the river Kalima in the far, far north, the far, far east of Russia, where people really shouldn't live. Temperatures drop below minus 50 degrees Celsius in the winter. Few people really went down the Kalima River of their own volition during the Soviet era. The region had a reputation as one of the most brutal, iciest corners of the Gulag but the Zimovs have been living there almost every year since around 1980. They lived for the first years without electricity and drew water from the river. As Sergei's wife, Kalina, told me, we felt free here. Few people have done more to unravel the riddles of the Russian Sphinx, as it were, than Sergei Zimov. He's a controversial giant, but a giant in the field. The very notion of there being a large pool of, of carbon locked in the permafrost, a lot of that can be traced to Zimov. He came to Chersky to help set up a science station, not only keeping it running, but really building it into a global hub of Arctic research. For more than 20 years, he and his son Nikita have been populating a stretch of about 160 square kilometers, which they call Plasticine Park. And they, they've been filling it with large grazing mammals, yaks, horses, sheep, oxen. So Mr. Zimov figures that the, the beasts he's uh, bringing up to the Arctic are going to clear away the shrubs, the moss, the large trees, the landscape that has developed recently in the area, and clear the way for grasslands of the kind that spread across Beringia during the Pleistocene epoch the glacial geological period that began some 2.6 million years ago and ended about 12,000 years ago. The way Sergei sees it, this process will slow the thawing of the permafrost and slow the release of potentially massive stores of greenhouse gases that could accelerate climate change. He sees his project in the grandest terms, as he put it to me. I'm building an ark. Out of all Zimov's ideas, none rouses passions quite like Plasticine Park. This image that he has of the way the Arctic looked at the time when, when woolly mammoths roamed the earth. The far north resembled a modern-day African savanna, really. Thick grasslands, loads of, of animals, herbivores grazing, 
woolly mammoths, bison, horses, elk, reindeers, predators like wolves and cave lions. That was life in the Arctic. But as the Pleistocene gave way to the Holocene, those herbivores died out. One explanation for the extinction, it was the warming climate itself. Zimov, though, sees things a different way. He reckons that as things got warmer, humans started moving further and further north. He argued that actually it was human hunting that led to the extinction of these, these megafauna in the far north. Plasticine Park really grows out of that theory, and the idea in, in simple terms is to reverse the process, to bring these megafauna back to the far north. So far, the park is admittedly small. That said, the results have been promising. The current mixture of animals out there, they have helped grasslands reemerge in, in the areas where uh, uh, they've been, been grazing in the park. And in those places, the soil temperatures are cooler than elsewhere. Zimov comes from a tradition of science in Russia that really tends towards grand sweeping theories that, that span disciplinary boundaries, that draw on knowledge from many different fields. He tends to measure about as much as he needs to in order to persuade himself that he's right. He'd be fine with a sample size of one. For Western scientists who really do place a premium on data, who operate within hyper-specialized fields and tend to make claims only in context of those fields where they have deep knowledge, Zimov can be a bit unsettling. That said, what he lacks in rigorous data or extensive measurements, he really just about makes up for with this deep engagement uh, with the environment. And that's part of you know, what, what comes from not only doing research in a place like Chersky, but living there and, and living there year-round for decades. That prolonged, deep observation of his surroundings has given him a kind of insight that's rare. One of the things that the Zimovs have been observing that's worrying a lot of folks who do study the permafrost is that the active layer, the upper layer of the permafrost, was no longer freezing over in the winter. The average temperature at the test sites around Chersky is now about 8 degrees warmer than a decade ago. It's, it's gone from minus 6 degrees to plus 2. For advocates of radical rewilding, what the Zimovs have done in Chersky is really tantalizing. It suggests this sense of possibility, this sense that we can revive these old landscapes and, and we can do so in a way that might just save us. There are lots of questions as well about whether Zimovs' theories will pan out on a, on a large scale. I mean, whether the grassland will ultimately uh, help to preserve the permafrost, whether the grazing animals won't have other side effects, unforeseen side effects too. But Zimov himself is undeterred. Sergei has sort of turned over day-to-day -day operations of the park to Nikita, and he crowdfunded more than $100,000 to bring a herd of 12 bison to the park. The catch was that it was only enough money to transport the bison overland. So Nikita picked them up himself and took them from Denmark overland through much of Europe and nearly all of Russia and ultimately to Chersky, where they arrived on a barge. So there were these 12 bison sort of shuffling their hooves in these uh, shipping containers. You can imagine they'd been a bit antsy after uh, weeks on the road. 
The Zimovs jammed this barge up onto shore and and hopped out with crew and built a bridge out of planks and and wood that they found on the shore. Nikita coaxed the animals one by one out of their cages and across this rickety bridge and onto land. After the success of this bison mission, we all retreated back to the research station, had a round of Samagon home brew, and toasted to the animal's health. Around then, I stepped out with Sergei, where he was having a smoke under the giant satellite dish. Sitting there, taking a drag, he turned to me and he said, before, this was for connecting with the party. Now, it's for connecting with God. God is sending us signals. Gather the animals. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're probably wondering where you are. You're on Mars. Oliver Morton is a senior editor at The Economist, and he's been on an extraterrestrial hike for the holiday issue. He followed the tracks of NASA's Curiosity rover on Mars, with a few detours. You're standing on a flat plain called Aeolus Palace, and I'm going to show you around. That's a wall of rock. They're not a chain of mountains like you find on the Earth. They're the wall of something. Gale Crater. It's about 150 kilometers across, and it's about 3.5 billion years old. So that's the wall of the world, but turn around behind you, and you'll see the prize. It's quite a mountain. Officially, it's called Aeolus Mons, but... Most people call it Mount Sharp. It's not sharp. It's actually pretty smooth. But it's big. It's about the size of Mont Blanc. It's not, by Martian standards, a particularly big mountain. I mean, Mars has some absolutely huge mountains. But it's a very strange mountain by any earthly standards. Because on Earth, mountains get pushed up from below. They get either built up by volcanic activity or scrunched up when two tectonic plates meet, as they do in the Himalayas. This mountain was cut out from above. There's nothing like it on Earth at all. But the rocks it's made of, they are almost uncannily Earth-like, more Earth-like than anything we've seen anywhere else in the solar system. Mars is, as you may have noticed, very cold. The atmosphere is terribly thin. Being at sea level, but there are no seas, is like being in the stratosphere of the Earth. Back in the day, though, it was, if not warm and wet, 
warmer and wetter. That's how this huge bowl of rock got filled up by water flowing into it, bringing with it muds and pebbles and sands. All that's gone. Most of the rock, all the water, you see frosts, you see ice caps at the poles, there's ice hidden in the ground, but flowing water is very rare on Mars. Almost everything that is active is rare on Mars. The volcanoes, they're huge. There's one on the equator that reaches halfway to space. There's an even bigger one, Olympus Mons, probably the largest volcano in the solar system, standing off on the edge of the northern plains. But they don't smoke, they don't spew out lava. Some of them may have been quiescent for more than a billion years. This is, with a few exceptions, a place where almost nothing happens. Obviously, you'll notice that you feel a little light on Mars. And that's good for those of us who live here, right? It means there's less stress on our heart. You'll have noticed that walking seems oddly slow here. That's because when you walk, your legs are acting as pendulums, swinging to a natural rhythm. And that rhythm depends on the gravity and on Mars that rhythm slows down. And so your walking pace slows down. So even though your body's lighter, you walk slower. Skipping really works as a way to get across a empty plane like this and into those interesting rocks up ahead. So here we are at what I think is one of the most bewitching parts of this landscape, the Bagnold Dunes. You'll notice they're a very different colour from everything else because they don't really have a colour. They're black as tarmac. They're black as the surface of the moon. And that's because they're made of basalt, as is the surface of the moon, as is most of the surface of Mars, as are the volcanoes of Hawaii. Basalt is the basic volcanic building stuff of lots of planets. On Mars, though, much of the basalt is coated with these veneers of reddish-brownish dust. It's only here that you see the basalt for itself because it's here that things have actually finally got active. These aren't fossilised dunes. The winds bend around the mountain and deposit the sands here and these sands are slowly marching towards the sand sea at the edge of the crater. Here you can actually mess around a bit because in a few days' time, no one will know we were ever here. I love this time of day here on Mars. I love the fact that a very faint set of colours starts showing up in the sky that's washed out during the day. I like that sometimes, if you're lucky, you can see Earth as the evening star hanging up there above the setting sun, above where the sun has set. It's not, in truth, as good or bright an evening star as Venus. But it's quite something to see it in the sky above this extraordinary, giant emptiness and feel the cold of the night starting to creep in and hear the faint hiss of the wind. This is a whole planet. Most of it was never visited by the spaceships of the 21st century. There's an awful lot of mystery left to discover here in the Martian sunset.
And finally, big data meets literature and culture. What can researchers learn from how many times the word green is used in Victorian novels? By processing more words than a human could ever read in a lifetime, machines can discover new meaning in text. James Tozer is a data journalist at The Economist, and he spoke to the researchers trawling through the classics with computers. The digital humanities all started off with a little faith. In 1941, Father Roberto Busa, a Catholic priest, started noting down as many uses of the word in as he could find in the Latin works of Thomas Aquinas. It ended up taking him eight years and 10,000 handwritten cards to do that. Having spent the best part of a decade on this, Father Busa suspected that he could probably do it much faster and more efficiently by using some type of machinery. Little did he know that the advent of computers was just around the corner. Father Busa ended up in New York, in the office of Thomas Watson, the CEO of IBM. And after twisting Watson's arm a little bit, he collected a series of IBM punch card machines to record all of Aquinas' 10 million words. Then magnetic tapes arrived, which was a new technology for recording the data. He ended up with nearly 60 people working on the project. By the time in 1980 he finished with all the magnetic tape, there was nearly a thousand miles of it, nearly the full length of Italy. Towards the end of his life, he wrote about it a fair bit, just how astounded he was at the progress that had been made in computational analysis of the humanities. The phrase he used was, Digitus Dei est hic, the finger of God is here. And I actually heard a story, these two big trucks carrying all these magnetic tapes. One of these two trucks actually caught fire. There was no, no backup. I'm Barbara McGillifrey, I'm a research fellow at the Alan Turing Institute and at the University of Cambridge. Barbara, in fact, worked on Father Booz's project and knew him, and today she is right at the cutting edge of what is being done with computers and the liberal arts. I can give you an example from research that I've done on ancient Greek texts. We were able to trace the changing meaning of, of some words um, in ancient Greek that scholars had spent many years studying. But what these techniques allow us to do is to see, for example, how many times a certain word was used in a certain meaning, when the shift happened, if it happened in specific authors or in specific genres, and do quantitative statistical analysis that are just impossible to do by hand. What Father Busa created is this enormous field of digital humanities, which today covers all sorts of crossovers between computing and the liberal arts. The 10 million words of Thomas Aquinas are but a drop in the ocean of all the great works of art and history and literature and philosophy that have been digitised. For example, Google Books has at least two trillion words in it. There are even apps that have millions and millions of paintings and sculptures recorded, so you can point your phone at a sculpture and it'll work out immediately what it is and who it's by and when it's from. So there's this enormous speed and scale that have been enabled by decades of exponential growth in computing power that now means the entire world of arts is available at your fingertips in just a few keystrokes. Some of the most interesting researchers focused on novels of the 18th and 19th century. One paper that was produced by the Stanford Literary Lab created an algorithm called the correlator, which essentially takes a given word 
looks at how often it appeared over time, whether it went up or down in usage, and then looks at other words that follow a similar pattern. So for example, the word tree moves more or less in lockstep with the words elm and beech and branch. They found some really interesting patterns, specifically about the rise of more concrete novelistic language, more sort of realistic language. Words like virtue and sensibility and pride and the sort of things that we might associate with Jane Austen fell increasingly out of fashion, whereas words that were slightly more tangible, body parts and colours, came into fashion. If you think about Charles Dickens at the other end of the scale, very realistic, lots of sights and sounds and sensations that you get in his novels. So they were able to sort of track and quantify that change and, and to show how it really persisted throughout lots of different novelists over the course of the 19th century. Computers aren't quite as good at humans, or in fact nowhere near at the moment as good at humans, as understanding what words really mean. No algorithm is going to be able to understand a Shakespearean sonnet or to get as much from a poem by Byron as a human reader could, but it might be able to apply some of the same framework to add more insight to the thousands and thousands of other poets and playwrights and authors who perhaps aren't as well remembered but still tell us something interesting about the time that they were writing in. It seems to me unlikely that the digital humanities are going to replace the traditional humanities just because they can't quite do the same thing, but hopefully they might augment them by offering these extra capabilities and tools. Our thanks to Noah Snyder, Oliver Morton, and James Tozer. Their stories feature in our holiday issue alongside the long reads on a terrifying battle of Sydney Street and the art of military deception. If you're not already a subscriber, there's still time for a New Year's resolution. For the best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And that's all for this year's Babbage. I want to thank our fabulous team of producers, Jason Hoskin, Amika Shortino-Nolan, William Warren, and of course, the executive producer, Sandra Shmueli. And we thank all of you, our Babbage listeners. Have a wonderful new year after a very trying year. And we look forward to bringing you more tech and science insights in 2021. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist, and we'll see you next year. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.